As the choir was singing, I was thinking how suitable that song would be for every day of 2024. Um, to be able to approach life every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday with that conscious acknowledgement that we belong to the Lord, we're not our own, and that has all kinds of dimensions to it, keeping us from the false paths and also giving us the, the courage we need and the comfort that we need as we uh, travel parts of the journey we've never faced before, and, and yet knowing that the Good Shepherd um, is with us, that we belong to him, that we're his sheep, that we hear his voice, and that he will get us safely home. Uh, I love that song, and it almost feels like it needs to be on a loop in my head uh, every, every day of the week. Um, obviously, the new year began um, quite a while ago. We're on day 14, but this is really the first day that folk are all back, and I know that that created a little bit of difficulty because it was kind of hard to find a place to sit if you had more than one or two people. If you have a family, and if you're actually, if you're visiting for the first time, you would like to keep your family together, uh, it becomes more challenging. So I just want to just put out to you that, that one of the practical things that we're going to need to do um, now that folk are back and we're rolling again, when I look out, I can see lots of, plenty of seats, okay, but they're scattered. And so what I want to encourage you to do is, as we come each time together on Sunday mornings, is to really keep an eye out for those that are looking for places to sit. Um, they won't be just first-time visitors, also be folk that have been members here forever, but 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 it's just going to be a little challenging. But if we can work together, I think we can help one another. It's a very practical way of showing love to one another, and I want to encourage you to do that. Um, it really is more than uh, what the ushers alone can take care of. It's really something we're all going to have to work at. And, and we may, we should be able to, you know, shuffle the deck a little bit, uh, you know, shake things around a little bit to where we can make room for uh, whatever people need. I want to encourage you to do that. This is a practical display of love. Well, last week when we were together, we saw at the beginning of John 12, a really a timeless portrait um, of devotion, true and false. You remember uh, that you had three groups of people, three people that really displayed devotion, true and false. You had the, the self-sacrificing love of Mary as she poured out the pure nard on Jesus' feet. You had... Judas's self-serving hypocrisy, and he criticizes her for not giving what that was worth to the poor when actually he just wanted to steal from the bag. And then you, you had the self-protected hostility of the chief priests, though they are, they are charged with the, as overseers of the worship of God, they nonetheless were mainly concerned that Jesus was threatening their prestige and their, their power. And so we saw that true devotion is self-sacrificing, and Jesus himself is going to, display, going to display that. But as we proceed further into this chapter, it raises the question as to why Jesus deserves devotion. I mean, we're all used to religious people, you know, they do devotional things, they do religious things, and, 
And, and there are people that might look at you and say, oh, well, you know, he's a churchgoer, she's a churchgoer, she's kind of into religion, I'm not really into religion. So the question is really not so much about religion, but, but what do we make of Jesus, and why does Jesus deserve devotion? What about him makes him worthy of worship? Where do we see his glory? You remember John started his gospel uh, early in, in chapter 1, and he says, we beheld, we closely observed his glory, his shining splendor, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, where do we see that glory displayed? And it kind of gives us a hint that, that John spends so much of his gospel on this last week of Jesus' life. And so today we're going to be looking at Jesus glorified. How does he show his glory? How do we uh, reflect that glory back to him. We are in John chapter 12, and we're going to read uh, beginning in verse 12. So if you have a copy of your Bible, or you can uh, pull the one from the pew rack, or follow on the screen. John 12, 12 to 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, so Galilee would have more interaction with Gentile uh, nations, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, a key verse in our reading this morning is verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. That should ring a bell. That's significant because it's a change from what we've read before in John. Remember way back in John 2 at the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus would turn water to wine, Jesus told his mother, my hour has not yet come. She expected him to do some kind of miracle uh, to manifest that he was the Messiah, and that was his initial response to her. To his brothers sometime later who wanted him to go up to the fall feast of tabernacles in John 7, 
He said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And he went up to the feast secretly later. In John 7, after teaching in the temple precincts, he talked about knowing God and coming from him and that he sent him. And they were seeking to arrest him because no one laid a hand on him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. At the end of John 8 and verse 20, he spoke, was teaching in the treasury, and as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. They told everybody that he needed to be arrested. They wanted to arrest him in order to kill him. That had been their objective for over a year, but his hour had not yet come. So they were powerless to destroy him. He would he would die at exactly the time God wanted him to die, and nobody could kill him before that. But here, even as Jesus enters Jerusalem in a way that will surely intensify the determination of his enemies in Jerusalem to murder him, he talks of his being glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, how is it possible for Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, Savior, King, to be glorified while at the same time provoking what would lead to his crucifixion that very week? We know this is on his mind because he moves immediately to talking about dying. How can suffering and glory go together? That is the great paradox of the gospel over which people still stumble. But it's crucial to the gospel. This is how the Savior will save. This is how the King will establish his rule. The cross comes before the crown. Jesus' identity as the Savior King is inseparable from his sacrificial death. Even as we witnessed last week in Mary's extravagant gift of pure nard poured out on Jesus' feet, prophetic, according to Jesus, of his burial. So let's think about, from this passage, Jesus glorified. He is glorified, first off, in verses 12 through 15, in his saving mission. Hosanna means save now. Okay? Verses 16 through 19, he is glorified in his resurrection power. In verses 20 to 26, he is glorified in his fruitful death. So let's talk about his saving mission because this is how he shows his glory. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, we need to answer the question, who is this exultant crowd? According to the text, they are those who have made their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. So, these are sincere Worshippers of God, holding to the Jewish calendar, making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. According to verses 17 and 18, they'd also come to see Jesus because they had heard from eyewitnesses that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. When we check the other gospel's record of this event, 
Luke 19 describes those that are celebrating here as the whole multitude of his disciples. And Matthew 21 records that the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So there was a lot of people that were watching that didn't really know what was going on, but they're shaken by it. They are not the ones who are shouting Hosanna. The ones shouting Hosanna are the ones causing the stir. After Jesus entered Jerusalem, he drove out the merchants in the temple, then healed the blind and the lame in the temple. And to that, children cheered in the words like those the crowd had used as they accompanied him into the city. Hosanna to the Son of David. According to Matthew's record, the chief priests and scribes saw the same miracles of healing, healing the lame and the blind, but they were enraged at the praise that the children gave to Jesus. Matthew 21, 16 records, they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 8 that talks about the majesty of God displayed in creation for all the world to see. What is man that you're mindful of him? His glory is so clear that even infants can see it, thus rebuking his foes and his enemies who refuse to give him glory. According to Luke 19... The Pharisees demanded that Jesus rebuke his disciples for their praise. But he replied in verse 40 of Luke 19, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. However imperfect the understanding of some in the crowd, what is clear is that Jesus considered their praise completely true and demonstrably self-evident from all that he had said and done. The Gospels make clear that while this sent shockwaves throughout Jerusalem and enraged Jesus' enemies, the crowd here is not the same group that would cry, crucify him. I don't know how many sermons I've heard on that. It's a different crowd. According to John 19, it was the chief priests and officers that cried out in response to Pilate after he had Jesus scourged, crucify him. And Matthew 27 records that the chief priests and elders persuaded the crowd gathered for Pilate's annual release of a prisoner to demand the release of Barabbas and the crucifixion of Jesus. It's a different crowd from this crowd. These are disciples. These are pilgrim worshipers come to celebrate the Passover who have heard about the resurrection of Lazarus, which miracle had caused a number of Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Added to them will be children responding to the self-evident glory of God manifest in the marvelous healing works of Jesus. So what would this crowd glorifying Jesus for? What are they saying? Well, verse 13 tells us they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, we're familiar with the word Hosanna. It's a religious word, but it, it kind of just sounds like high-fiving to us, like, yeah, like cheering. Hosanna means, though, save now. Save now. Salvation 
is rescue, it's deliverance, it's healing. And, and certainly that would apply to Jesus, right? He's actually, he's, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. He's going to heal the blind and the lame. It can be applied to any realm of human need. But Jesus' very name means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And the angel told Mary and Joseph to name him Jesus, Yahweh saves, because he would save his people from their sins. Now, that's a deeper plague than blindness. That's greater even than physical death. The human plague that has marred our world and has marred ourselves, that condemns us to death and to judgment, that is what he came to rescue us from. And they draw this praise from a familiar passage in Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Save us, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The psalm is profoundly messianic. It prophesies the coming Messiah. The preceding verse in the psalm talk about the stone that the builders rejected becoming the head of the corner, the cornerstone. And in the temple, on the day after this triumphal entry, Jesus will confront the chief priests and elders with this very same passage from Psalm 118, according to Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has now become head of the corner. The one coming in the name of the Lord is none other than the Messiah, the premier king of Israel. That's why the crowd refers to him as the son of David. For God promised David that his son would sit on his throne and reign forever. The angel refers to this truth. When he announces to Mary that she would bear a son to whom God would give the throne of David on which to reign forever. That's in Luke 1. So, in this very psalm that the crowd quotes in honor of Jesus, praising him for being the Savior King, it is also clear that the Messiah will face deadly opposition from those who are the leaders in Jerusalem, the builders but the builders will not prevail. One final piece in this picture of the promised Savior King entering Jerusalem. According to Zechariah's prophecy, he would enter not on a war horse, but on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This promised king bringing salvation is righteous and humble. And so he rides a humble animal, a goat of a donkey. It is not till after his resurrection that the disciples realize the prophetic significance of his having chosen this animal for his mount. Luke 19 and Matthew 21 tells us that he actually sent two of his disciples into the village of Bethany to procure this young donkey that had never been ridden on before. And he did so intentionally, not just to fulfill the prophecy, but to underscore his willing humility that he would exercise in his saving mission. Now, you put all this information together, and it's clear 
that Jesus is glorified in his saving mission. Even though many of his disciples may have a skewed understanding of how he would save them, thinking mainly of his role as a king and even as a warrior, nonetheless, their praise of Jesus has to do with his identity as the promised Savior King, the Son of David, the Messiah. And we glorify Jesus when we affirm his identity as the promised Messiah who has come to save us from our sin, just as his name conveys. We glorify him when we confess freely that we need a Savior and we cannot save ourselves as some falsely imagine. We glorify him when you see him as far more than just a prophet or a teacher or even a miracle worker, but as the promised Savior of the world. If we don't look to him as Savior, as healer, as deliverer, as rescuer, we're not giving him the glory that he deserves. If the Jesus I worship isn't a Jesus who saves me from sin and death, the condemnation, the one who can heal everything that's wrong with me and everything that's wrong with the universe, then I'm worshiping a different Jesus. This is the Savior. He is glorified in his saving mission. So that leads to some questions about our own lives. In what ways can you glorify Jesus for the great Savior that he is? And this can be a little bit difficult for us to take it out of like theological fog bank and bring it right into to present reality. But as I got thinking about this, think about it this way. Do you look, can you, will you look to Jesus as your hero, as your deliverer, as your healer, as, as the one who's paying the ransom to rescue you from the sin that's killing you? as the answer for a world that is chained to sin and death and to sorrow and suffering and cruelty. This is the Jesus. This is the one we need. This is the Savior. And then what habits and attitudes, behaviors in your life could create doubt that Jesus has saved you. If you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, how are you manifesting that just in the way you live life? Are, are, or are you joining the fretful crowd along with everybody else? You know, are there ways you can display that you're actually trusting Jesus to be your Savior, to be your rescuer? And then what lesser things or persons do you tend to look to for rescue instead of Jesus, the Savior King? You know, a lot of times with our problems, we're, we're so quick to get out the logbook, we're so quick to, you know, to, to, to work through the paces to try to figure out our problems, and, and it's like, oh, it's like a, a last thought that, hey, maybe I could pray about this, or, or maybe I need to lean on the Lord about this. We, we looked at what only man can do instead of what God can do. And then, finally, if you are a believer, who, who are the people that you need to point toward Jesus? 
as the only Savior God has sent us. You know, so often, God brings trouble into our lives as human beings to help us understand how needy we actually are. This is why it's so hard for a rich man to enter heaven is he, he doesn't sense his need. But put him on a bed of affliction, have him stare death in the face, remove his wealth, remove his health, and suddenly he starts to realize how frail he is and how vulnerable he is and how mortal he is and how much he needs a savior. Who are the people like that that God has brought into your life and he's brought you into theirs that you can point to the Savior? Because we want to be busy glorifying Jesus in his saving mission. Second, he is glorified in his resurrection power. Verse 16 tells us his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Three groups of people in this part of the passage. First, there's disciples. They didn't understand the significance of Jesus entering Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, until Jesus was glorified, referring to his resurrection from the grave and his ascension to heaven 40 days after his crucifixion. The saving mission Jesus came to fulfill required his death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For him to reign forever as king required that he would rise again after his death. But did Jesus possess that level of power? It's a fair question. What well, was obvious, the answer is obvious to anyone who had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. The answer is yes. And for the apostles, along with hundreds of others who spent time with Jesus after he himself rose from the dead, his resurrection power was undeniable and is the key to the good news that they would proclaim. Without the resurrection of Jesus, his life and ministry make no sense. There's no way to combine his suffering and death with his victory over all his enemies and his eternal reign apart from the resurrection. And the messianic prophecies predict both. They predict his suffering and reign. They predict his ultimate victory over all his enemies and his eternal reign. So the resurrection solves this paradox of how the Messiah could suffer and die and yet at the same time reign forever. The second group here is the witnesses of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and those that had heard their testimony. That's why there was a crowd cheering for Jesus on that day. His resurrection power was key to their conviction that he was indeed the promised Messiah. If he doesn't have power over death, then they wouldn't be cheering like they are. Over and over, Peter and the other apostles testify that God raised Jesus from the dead, just as David had prophesied in Psalm 16, you won't leave your Holy One to suffer corruption. You won't leave him in the grave. And that they are witnesses. They were witnesses of God's having raised Jesus, and that he is now exalted at the right hand of God. There's a third group here, the Pharisees. 
They say to one another, you see you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Well, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Their doctrine held to the inerrancy of Scripture. Their doctrine held to angels and miracles. Um, they were the conservatives. They were the separatists. They believed in the resurrection. But they had no use for Jesus' power to raise the dead because they hated the acclaim that his resurrection power gained for him. They cared less about Jesus' display of the power of God than about the popularity Jesus was gaining that put their own power and prestige at risk. They valued the glory that comes from man, not the glory of God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, many of these same men joined the conspiracy to accuse the disciples of stealing the body, which Jewish leaders had rendered impossible when they posted Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. It was clearly a lie. Jesus is glorified when we affirm that he does indeed have power over death, not only in his raising others from the dead, but in his own resurrection from the dead. One day, he will raise us from the dead as well. His testimony is clear on this. He said that the dead will hear his voice and those that hear will live. Just as we have heard his voice spiritually and have come to life, so our dead bodies will hear his voice. Without resurrection power, there is no hope beyond the grave for us or anybody else, including Jesus. If there is no resurrection, the apostles are liars. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says further that they are of all men most miserable because they suffered all they did for a false hope. The promise of eternal life is meaningless unless what Christ offers is stronger than death itself. It's meaningless apart from his resurrection power. So, in what ways should the resurrection power of Jesus change how you and I view death and dying? I mean, this, this changes the equation, doesn't it? Death is a fearful thing. None of us long for death itself. It's an enemy that has to be destroyed. But, you know, we spend a lot of our life just avoiding the subject. You know, the, the younger we are, we tend to think, well, I don't even have to worry about that for a long time. And the problem is young people die too. But as we travel on through life and we get older and older and the maladies mount up, we become more and more aware that we are mortal and that we are going to die. How can knowing that Jesus has resurrection power change the natural view we would have of our death and of the process of dying? And in what ways do we show we value like the Pharisees, popularity among men more than we value the power of God. Think about the ways that you're pressed to yield to what is popular 
And I think the older we get, the more, you know, we see there's different trends. Every decade's different as to what's popular, what's true. And so it almost becomes laughable. But the pressure is real. The pressure is real, and we're all exposed to it. Pressure to conform to the spirit of the age. Well, how much do you value that popularity versus the power of God? Would you prefer to experience the power of God to experiencing the approval of men? And that's something we have to actually wrestle with. A lot of churches have to wrestle with this as they cave to whatever is culturally trendy rather than sticking to a powerful gospel. And then finally, in what ways does your life evidence the resurrection power of Jesus? Because the apostles point to this power, for instance, in Ephesians 1, as what drives the transformation that happens in a believer's life. Things change in our lives that shouldn't be able to change because the power of God that is in them through the Holy Spirit is resurrection power. There, there's a change, a, a reversal in the way they think and the way they live. Is that evident in your life? Would, would somebody who knows you, knows what you were before you were saved, knows how you live now, would they say, well, there's a person where the power of God's evident? You know, I wouldn't have thought it was possible, but there it is. Okay. Third, Jesus is glorified in his fruitful death. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. doesn't mean they just want to look at him. It means they want to have an audience with him. They want to have a, a conference with him. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world. And by the way, he's not just saying, you know how people have the expression, oh, I, I hate my life. Like, it's so miserable, I can't wait to get... That's not what he's saying. He's saying, it's the idea of, of loving your life on this earth to a level that that's what you live for versus loving eternal life. Hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, it may have been a, a startling thing for, for Philip and Andrew that these Greeks are looking to speak to Jesus too. These Greeks have come to worship at the Passover, so likely they are proselytes of the Jewish faith. But that Greeks too are looking to have time with Jesus foreshadows the Messiah's worldwide kingdom. And it's likely that, that Jesus was in the part of the temple precincts where the Greeks weren't allowed to go. So so these Greeks approached Philip to see if he could bring Jesus to them. And this request could have created excitement for Philip and Andrew that finally, finally, Jesus is about to inaugurate his kingdom, his worldwide kingdom. So what Jesus says next was like throwing cold water on their expectations. He goes back to talking about dying. 
But Jesus teaches them that his dying is necessary to bearing fruit. It is necessary to the very success for which they long. Just as a grain of wheat buried in the ground produces many grains of wheat in the harvest. Greek believers would be part of that vast harvest. People from every tribe and nation and language, ethnicity, will worship Jesus and will be citizens of his everlasting kingdom. In fact, only 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus, at the harvest feast of the day of Pentecost, there would be this huge gathering of Jews who had been dispersed in many countries of the world. Speaking in languages of these regions, the praises of God as the Spirit of God gave ability to the followers of Jesus to speak, that drew the crowd. It was a sign that the gospel was not just for Jews, but for all ethnicities, all languages, all over the world. Jesus had to die first to produce this harvest. His death would not be the end, but the beginning. Well, just as Jesus had to die to be fruitful, so his followers cannot cling to this life and this world if they want eternal life in the next. To follow Jesus requires dying to self, but it brings life and fruitfulness. Even as Jesus taught all along, you have to deny yourself to serving him. And when you serve and follow him, you end up wherever he is all along the way until you're in heaven itself. You know, I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. I know that the journey that I'm going to take is if I'm with the Lord, if I'm following the Lord, he'll be with me all the way and, and right into entering the very gates of heaven where he rules. God the Father honors those who forsake their own honor to serve and follow Jesus. Their death to self is fruitful even as Christ's death on the cross is fruitful. So it, it seems backwards to us. It seems backwards in a world that talks about finding yourself and serving yourself and believing in yourself to, to sacrifice yourself. But when you do, you actually find what your heart most longs for, the very freedom of following the Lord and your good shepherd. This is precisely the sacrifice that the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees refuse to make. They chose instead the present honor from man rather than the eternal honor from God. And right now, on this day of history, do you think there's a one of them that is glad they made that bad choice? Not Look, you're going to lose your life anyway. You might as well lose it for something that matters. Because when you do, when you follow Jesus, you actually find it. So what does Jesus' willingness to die to save you tell you about his love for you? I mean, the fruitfulness he's talking about, okay? The fruitfulness he's talking about is this whole host of sinners that are rescued among them is you and is me if we're trusting in him. 
He's going to the cross. He's giving up his life for you. And he finds it worth it. It brings him glory to rescue sinners that way. What ambitions and appetites in this life? I mean, when you get honest with yourself, do you need to forsake in order to follow Jesus? Or maybe another way you could say that, what's keeping you from following Jesus? I mean, you might, you might say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, but are you really following him? I mean, can you honestly say, I'm following Jesus in the way that I'm living? Well, what's keeping you from doing that? Because whatever it is, evidently matters more to you than Jesus does. So sacrifice that and follow Jesus. And in what ways do you show that you value the honor that comes from the Father more than the honor that comes from human beings? You know, the song that the choir sang, you know, is this the way you're living life? I belong to the Lord. I am not my own. And I love that. And that's the secret to my life. Are you bringing glory to Jesus? Not that you can somehow add more shining splendor than he already has, but that you recognize it for what it is and you celebrate it for what it is and you declare it and you live according to the glory that is Jesus. He is glorified in this saving mission. He is glorified in his resurrection power. He is glorified in his fruitful death. Let's walk with him the whole way. Let's pray. Dear God, even among those who believe in you and trust in Jesus, we find our hearts to be fickle, our desires ebb and flow, the temptations swirl around us, our sins are many. And Lord, we would pray that we would glorify Jesus for who he actually is, not just some celebrity, not just some do-gooder, although he did good, but Lord, as the Savior, as the one who raises the dead, as the one who died to produce a fruitful harvest of souls for God. Lord, may we glorify him. And Lord, I pray that this morning there would be those gathered with us who have not to this point actually trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord, who choose to glorify him because they, the light has gone on and they, they recognize how much he deserves the glory. Help them give up on their own ambition. Help them turn away from their sin. Help them turn away from, from the other things they're looking to for deliverance and happiness in this life. And may they trust fully in Jesus to rescue them and to lead them. Lord, may we live life following him. May we have the true pleasure of knowing that we are with him and that he is with us and, and nothing can separate us and that he will welcome us into his eternal home and, and, and will commend us for serving him. 
in a world that rebels against him. God, may our hearts be completely his. I pray you would rescue folk today. Lord, your heart is for sinners. And Lord, I pray you would rescue people today and make them part of your kingdom, part of your family, that you would have them join the crowd, waving palm branches and shouting, save now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Oh God, may we bring him praise. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray.